0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the Book on BFM 89.9.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Chwilin. With me is my fellow stylish language enjoyer, Shamila Ganesan. I would say that the people who um, are inspiring that particular phrase might take umbrage to what you just said. I know they would and that's part of the fun. So um, today it's our monthly bibliography episode and we're doing something slightly different because we are actually going to be focusing on one book mainly and two authors. And the reason why we're doing it this way is because we are going to be focusing on Strunk and White and the book that in some ways is So well known that it continues to be held up, right, as the emblem of what we're supposed to do. We're going to be talking about the book that they essentially co wrote in a weird sense, The Elements of Style, which was published in firstly in 1920 and then later on in
0: 1959. So. I think Elements of Style is interesting for anyone who's a writer, or who works with language, um, because it's almost uniformly recommended as the book you have to have read, right? Um, it talks about how to write, essentially, how to use language in the most effective and economical, I want to say, uh, way. And it's been immensely influential. It's also not without its share of detractors. And I think particularly if you were from America, or grew up with American English or learned under the American system, it's really formative. It's essentially probably the first style guide or textbook that many people would have turned to when they learned to write in English.
1: It is famously an extremely slim book. When it was first published, I think it was under 50 pages. And it was initially something that was cobbled together or put together by William Strunk Jr., who was a professor in Cornell University. And it was meant really for his students. It was meant to to teach university students how to write well. I imagine born of the frustration of many (laughs) a college professor who tired of reading essays, you know, that just did not have the elements of style. And so while that was where it originally came from, it was expanded, revised, edited and amended slightly by... Strunk's former pupil E.B. White, who you might know as the author of *Stuart Little* of *Charlotte's Web*, and we'll get to that shortly. But this is really the setup for today's show. We wanted to talk about elements of style, but then you know, talk about the body of work that the two authors also have. Uh, For one of them, the elements of style really is the main thing. And so, to come back to to the book itself, I thought we could spend a bit of time talking about like you said, right, how it is a book that is still immensely loved, but also in some circles really reviled. And I think it comes down to whether or not you view it as a guidebook that is there to offer structure and scaffolding, or whether you view it as a rule book. And ultimately, how you feel about the book is going to depend on where you land on that spectrum
0: it's tricky, right? Because language is not static, it evolves as well. And this is a book that that was written decades ago. And so in many ways, the way people write and the way people use words and structure sentences have changed, have evolved. So some parts of it, I can understand why the book might feel like it's a little bit archaic. But on the other hand, um, as someone who came to it later, so not as someone who had my initial uh, approach to writing shaped by this book, but as someone who came. Came to this book after I had already sort of set in stone in some ways. I found this book really useful in "quote unquote" correcting myself or sort of picking up tips on how to make myself a better writer, make myself sort of better at how I use language to think about the reader to a large extent, which I think is a huge focus for this book. Because if you think of the rules that they talk about, um, things like be concise, be clear, don't use superfluous words, um, all of which I seem to be doing now. These are rules that are useful in most circumstances. If you're a journalist, if you're a manager writing memos. So I, I'm i on the side of seeing value in this book still, although I can see why people criticize it.
1: I think it's part and parcel of being one of the most influential books in, in this century, right? It, it just comes with that because oh, this century or the last. But the point is that it comes with that. When you have a lot of influence, when a lot of people have had it thrown at their heads by irate teachers, then of course you're going to get this sort of reaction. I will just say that if you are unfamiliar with the elements of style, it essentially puts together a sort of how-to, a sort of how to do it best. From William Strunk Jr. first, uh, E.B. White later on kind of amended, as mentioned, and he added, an, he added an introduction and he also added a segment on writing, which was basically how to apply said rules. But it had, let's see, a list of common word usage errors, 11 rules of punctuation and grammar. That's the one that's most hotly contested, I think. 11 principles of writing, 11 matters of form, 21 reminders for better style. So as you can see from the way it's structured, it's really meant to be accessible and immediate. And that's also the style of writing and language that it pushes. It wants you to omit the superfluous, as you said, it wants you to use the active voice to think of every word in a sentence being necessary, every sentence in a paragraph being necessary, every paragraph in a book being necessary. Because if you think about the famous line, of course, is that if you think about it as a drawing, you wouldn't want lines that don't need to be there and writing should be the same way. And that's the kind of vigorous and rigorous style that the book prompts you to think about.
0: It's celebrated by people as varied and different, and 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 throughout time, from Dorothy Parker to Stephen King. So, I mean, I think it stood many writers in good stead. Uh, I also really like the the story of how the book came about and how it became from just a strunk book to a strunk and white book, because um, essentially. Strunk had been teaching with this book for um to his students, of whom E. B. White was one of them. And E. B. White became co-writer because he first wrote a, an essay in tribute to his professor after his professor's death. And that essay then prompted the publishers to ask White to co-author, in some ways, the book and, and essentially contribute his own sections. The tribute essay became a part of the book as well. Um, so In some sense, it wasn't a collaboration in that way. It was almost a a sort of passing on of knowledge and an accumulation of knowledge. And I like that. I like that because I think it shows that um, this process of learning how to write is something that has been really taught very literally in the sense and it also represents two halves, right? Because Strunk, on the one hand, is an academician. E.B. White is a practitioner. He's, he's been, He was a writer for decades. Uh, by the time he wrote, or, or rather wrote his segments in this book, he was
1: already a well-established writer. So I think he adds to it the practical applications of the academic aspects. Um, I love that you mentioned practicing writer because I think, you know, we forget that, of course, there are many forms of writing. Not everybody can go out to a cabin in the woods, light a candle and... <laughs> And, you know, sit there in their personal writers' retreat for three months, emerge with an opus. Instead, E.B. White, yes, of course, and and he wrote very famous children's books, which we'll get to shortly. But he was also a very um, a staff writer for the New Yorker at a time when the New Yorker was just really starting to come together and you know he was part of the building blocks of what it now is and so he was uh, he was someone who actually earned his living by writing every day so this idea of practitioner is an important one and uh, something else I wanted to bring up was that EB white had forgotten about the book so the students um, William Strunk jr students all called it the little book right because again it was a very slim volume literally fit into their pockets that's the idea that you can yeah. just carry it around and whenever you need to write an angry letter to someone, you pull it out. And and he had, by the time that he was asked to, to revisit this, he had forgotten about the existence of the book, which I think is just a lovely touch. But I think this is the point in the show where we can briefly touch on William Strunk, because not a lot is known about him, despite the fact that Strunk and White is kind of the name right, that is known, that is associated with the book. E.B. White is the person uh, who's better documented. And even then, it's kind of tricky. But with William Strunk, um, not much is known. We've already said, I think, a lot of it in broad strokes. He was, an, um, he was a professor of English at Cornell University. He was born on July 1st, 1869. He passed away September 26th, 1946. So again, before um, the better known version of Elements of Style was published.
0: Interestingly, he is, of course, known for being a language professor, but he um, also taught mathematics and, you know, in his specialization in things like morphology and philology. So I think that gives you a really great indication of where he comes from, this sort of ordering of language and the need to make sense of it and to establish rules. And I think that comes out really well um, in in the book and the way that it's structured. It's the 11 this and the 21 that. But yes, I don't think there's very much else that's known about William Strunk other than his contribution to one of the best known language guides.
1: And also his qualities as a teacher, because Mm. that was something that was often talked about. You know, his um, students all, I think, remembered him as somebody who was very involved, very available, I think, in some ways to reading their manuscripts and the like, uh, very helpful. They had a
0: club, the Manuscripts Club. Yes,
1: exactly. Um, And so there was that memory. I think there was also something else that was recalled. I can't remember by who now, who spoke about how um, in watching William's drunk teach, his own rules seem to have shrunk his language and therefore his lessons to such a degree that he often found it difficult or he thought that his teacher was finding it difficult to meet the clock. Because of course, if you're you're in university, you're there for a course, it's two hours, you're going to sit there and watch your lecturer teach. And so what he said was that he found that William Strunk got around that by repeating each short sentence thrice. And that in and of itself um, is now a rule, right? This idea of repetition as emphasis. So I, I just enjoyed that anecdote. We're talking today on our monthly bibliography episode of two separate authors joined together always by one very famous book. So we started off our show by talking about The Elements of Style, which was first published in 1918 for college students and subsequently for The Wider World After a revision at 1959, and so we've also talked about William Strunk Jr., one half of Strunk and White. After this, we're going to be focusing on E.B. White. Let us know, um, have you read The Elements of Style? Is it something that interests you, or have you read any of E.B. White's works? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Be
0: free-minded, BFM. Eighty-nine point
1: nine. Hello everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Shamila, and today we are talking about the two authors of The Elements of Style on our monthly bibliography episode. And it's kind of fitting and also kind of strange that it's taken us this long to get to Elements of Style since it's such a foundational building block for so many authors. In fact, the authors that we've already spoken about. So we talked earlier about William Strunk Jr., who was an English professor at Cornell University and the person who originally elements of style. Let's now talk about the man who was a student and went back in, revised and added on to it, E.B. White. I have a confession to make that for a fairly
0: long amount of time, I didn't realize that the White of Strunk and White and E.B. White of Charlotte's Web was the same person. I get that. Uh, Yeah. And and when I found out, I was actually honestly quite mind blown. And I think that in itself should should tell you a little bit about E.B. White, because the other thing that I know of him is this really great essay that he wrote for the New Yorker back in 1949 called Here is New York. If you're looking for a great piece of nonfiction writing, it's one of my favorites. And the reason I bring that up is because children's book essay on New York style guide. You couldn't pick three more different pieces of text, and yet they're all written by the same man. And that kind of gives an indication of the kind of writer he was. He was a very versatile writer, but also someone who was very thoughtful, very, I want to say, inward thinking, and that shows up a lot in his work.
1: So... Coming back to elements of style, right, I think that one of the through lines of E.B. White, who whose full name, by the way, is Elwyn Brooks, which I really like, what, a, what an American name of a certain age. But the whole focus on simplicity, I think, is part of the reason why uh, when you read Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, Here is New York, and elements of style, the through line there is somebody who is simple, direct, and also somewhat melancholic. I, I think that mm-hmm. there is a melancholy strain through a lot of his writing. There was a quote, I think, uh, of him saying that writing is never fun. <laughs> when someone had um, asked him to write an essay and he, and promised fun and games, and he was like, nah, that's not what writing is for me. And that sense of melancholy is what gives his writing a sense of gravitas as well and and something that you don't necessarily expect in children's books or in some ways having that sense of melancholy in Charlotte's Web opened the door for a lot of children's books to adopt the same tone.
0: He's also famously shy and, you know, there are so many stories about how he would just refuse to attend gatherings. I think James Thurber once said that he'd rather climb out a fire escape than be forced to meet someone he wasn't anticipating. And I think a lot of that is reflected in the kind of um, the work that he does, right? There's a sense of delight or joy in the world, but there's also a sense of not loneliness, but almost a, a love of being quiet, a love of being on his own. Um, and these are reflected in certainly the both the children's books that he's written. And, I don't know. I think it's easy to romanticize an author uh, and sort of draw conclusions about who he was based on his writing. But I think when you look at the things people said about him as well, I constantly get this image of someone who I think enjoyed the quieter things in life.
1: So there are two things I want to bring up here. One is his work experience. So we spoke earlier about how he was a staff writer for The New Yorker. And by the time Elements of Style came out, actually, it was after the publication of Charlotte's Web. So he was hugely popular. But before that, he also worked on boats. Uh, He also worked in an advertising agency. He uh, He was a cub reporter for many years. And I think that that kind of variety of life experience is actually a huge asset to essayists. And this is something that we see over and over again, right? Um, We spoke about George Orwell on a previous bibliography episode, and that's also somebody who did a lot outside of writing. He wrote a lot, but he also went and lived a lot of life. And I I think that we're giving the impression that E.B. White was shy and retiring, and I think that's very true. But he also loved animals. He also loved farming. He also loved, you know, all these things. So he was somebody who also lived a lot, in a sense. He was an active person. I mean, I I think it's significant that he spent parts of his life in Maine, which is a state in the United States that is associated with these
0: things. So there's this quote from him that I love. um, And that is all that I hope to say in books, all that I ever hope to say is that I love the world. And I think that just about says it all. Because, You can be quiet or shy or retiring and still be hugely aware and in love with the world that you're in. And I've
1: I've always thought that that's the kind of, or I've always imagined that that's the kind of person he was. So the other thing, uh, one of the facts that I liked about him was also that while it took a very long time of convincing of the editor at the time, Harold Ross, to hire him, and that persuasion was done by um, the fiction editor at the time for The New Yorker, Catherine Sargent. Eventually, he got hired Had an affair with Katherine Sargent. She got divorced from her husband, who was also writing for the New Yorker. Married him. They both went back to work the next day. You know, here I was talking about
0: E.B. White and how sort of shy and retiring I was. Who knew that there was this sort of drama attached to his name? It's enjoyable. Find out. Find out when you work on these shows.
1: So, I think we do have to spend a bit of time talking about the writing itself, right? We mentioned, of course, we spoke extensively about, about elements of style. We've mentioned his work for The New Yorker. But I think to this day, and especially for us here, the books that he is best known for are in that order Charlotte's Web and then Stuart Little.
0: Yes. And I was actually frankly shocked to realize he'd actually only written three children's books. And that came as a surprise to me because both those books are so sophisticated and they're such good books that they seem like someone who had been writing for much, much longer on that genre. And I think why they seem that way and why they work so well is because he doesn't talk down to children. He's essentially writing, the way he writes is extremely sophisticated considering the audience that he's aiming at.
1: Characters are allowed to do bad things. Characters Mm -hmm. are allowed to be very afraid of death, be very afraid of violence, uh, but they're also allowed to move on from their friends. And you see all these things happen in the first third, I would say, of Charlotte's Web. And yet at the end of it all, it's also still just a delightful barnyard story about the friendship between Wilbur and Charlotte. And And you can read it for that, but you can also read it as a way of preparing children for the inevitable um, of preparing children for change. And I I mean, I remember reading Charlotte's Web for the first time when I was around the right age to read it, I think. Still, Still a child, not yet a teenager. And I remember being really blown away by it and having to sit with it for a while at the fact that there wasn't a happy ending. It was an incredibly bittersweet ending. And as an adult, I think I understand even more how bittersweet that ending actually is. I love the fact that he started writing children's fiction because of his niece.
0: And and that's what sort of got him started on this. And, And the reason I bring that up is because I think knowing who you're writing for and what you want to tell them is incredibly important. And exactly the things that you just said, right? This notion of both giving children something that they can delight in and find joy over, but also makes them think and reflect and is slightly uncomfortable in the way that life unfortunately is. Um, Not only do I think that that's something kids actually enjoy and the reason why they hold on to books like these, I think it's important. And I think that's a huge component of why children's fiction
1: is important. It is also, however, why I think it took such a long circuitous path to publication because Charlotte's Web, um, even writing it and completing it was not an easy path, right? He had the stories ready. He'd been writing them for his niece, but he wasn't sure about them. So they were really just small family stories that were meant for one person. And actually, it's a series of people. It's a series of editors and agents and um, people who worked in libraries telling him that, hey, this is a book that is worth publishing and Pushing it along the way. And that's how Charlotte's Web came to be. And I'm glad it exists. It's one of my favourite children's books. And I think it does set a template for, for what we're talking about, essentially, in terms of writing for children or writing in a way that children enjoy, which is to say, not necessarily writing for children at all.
0: I completely agree. Um, I just wanted to give a little bit of shine to Stuart Little, which uh, which is actually his first book. It came out before Charlotte. And I think it, it's often thought of as being a slightly lesser than compared to Charlotte. But I recently reread it and I realized how it's incredibly clever. Stuart's adventures in a world that he's sort of ill suited for, I think is something that, again, hits that sweet spot between things kids like to read about, but also makes them a little sad and scared. I don't know. I'm so glad that we're talking about these books because I feel like books like these don't get written often enough. And I think they're always worth revisiting.
1: So that is our bibliography episode, at least before we get to the bit about adaptations, that has been focused on one book and both its authors. So we started off talking about elements of style and then kind of trod all over its principles in many ways through the course of our show. Um, but we also spoke about both its authors, Strunk and White, William Strunk Jr., as well as E.B. White. Let us know, have you read elements of style, have you read any of EB White's books, especially when you were a kid or to your children? You can WhatsApp us zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine, tweet us at BFM radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm. Mm-hmm. Brings us to footnotes. And usually, when we talk about the breadth of an author's work, we spend this part talking about the adaptations of said work because William Strunk was a professor. um, (laughs) You know, he didn't really write much for Hollywood, although he did serve as the, I think, a consulting expert for Romeo and Juliet for MGM.
0: He did. And I wanted to point out that uh, there's actually been an opera made from, inspired by elements of style. So I don't know, I've never actually heard the music, but if you're curious about what music inspired by rules of language sounds like, go look that up. I think it might be interesting.
1: In a way we can understand. So, having said that, I think the better known adaptations um, are probably of E.B. White's work, specifically of the two books that we were talking about at the end there, namely Stuart Little, of which there's been one, two and three actually. You're invited to meet the newest member of the little family. Attention, everybody. This is Stuart. Hello.
0: Everyone? Are you all nuts? He's a mouse.
1: They introduced him into their world. Well, it's just about everybody, except for. Snowbell! Drop him right now! Spit him right out! And Charlotte swept. Salutations. My name is Charlotte. Charlotte A. Cavatica. Hi. Mm. I've never met a spider before. What are you doing? Making breakfast. Do you eat flies? No. I drink their blood. Uh, please don't hurt me. I'm making you a
0: promise. I am going to save you. You're a spider. How are you going to stop them? With the right words, you can change the world. Templeton. I need words and lots of them. I must say that I haven't been the biggest fan of the adaptations. And that's not because they're inherently not great. Um, Charlotte's Web in particular is actually really good. And I like Stuart Little because Michael J. Fox's voice work in that is just really great. But I think there's something about the subtleties of both these books and and the language and the way E.B. White writes that just doesn't translate onto screen. Um, it, it feels like a paler imitation of something that you know is much stronger.
1: Yes, and I, I think it's just mistaking the books perhaps for something fun and fluffy when they're mm. not. I, I think the fact that both books involve animals makes the adaptations very deceptive um, because Stuart Little is in some ways not really about a boy slash teenager who is stuck in the body of of a mouse um you know it's it's really about not belonging and about finding finding your people, finding a bird who will protect you against a murderous cat you know mm-hmm. it's it's more about that really than it is about what it's like to be a mouse but but of course, when you translate that into into Michael J. Fox voicing a mouse, you're going to focus on that instead, and especially when you have a rather delightful cast. The movies do have a very good cast, Um, but I think that they miss the mark in terms of that melancholy that we're talking about and instead default to a sort of Disney fluffiness that just comes in whenever we talk about animals. And the same is perhaps true of Charlotte's Web. And I wanted to say here that The original illustrations for Charlotte's Web apparently featured a spider with a woman's face and E.B. White needed to tell the illustrator just draw a spider. That sounds terrifying. That's what I'm saying. And I think that the movies should have gotten that instruction too.
0: (laughs) So the the sad part with the movie is that Julia Roberts' voice for Charlotte is actually really nice. I, I, I enjoyed that version of it. But I didn't like the way Charlotte looked. I didn't particularly like the way the movie toned down some of the more existential, melancholic aspects of the story. Uh, and again, yeah, you're right. I think at the end of the day, they they don't realize that it's okay for movies to be complex and complicated
1: and still be children's stories. I would like to see perhaps a fully animated version of Charlotte's Web in like a Miyazaki style, for example. Oh my god, I was going to
0: say Miyazaki meets Charlotte's Web. That's my dream.
1: Yeah, because I think it would be so, so beautiful and also actually not shy away from the sadness and tragedy and rebirth that sits at the heart of that story. So yeah, unfortunately, um, for such classics, they don't have the best adaptations, but we live to fight, right? We live to fight another day. Who knows what they'll come up with. For now, you heard it here first, folks. Our vote is for a Miyazaki meets E.B. White collaboration. Are you saying you don't want to see the elements of style opera on screen? Because I kind of want to. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. That's a good example. For some reason, my heart ran cold. I thought you were going to say Zack Snyder. I'm not sure why. I thought you were going to say you wanted to see Zack Snyder do I, Stuart I Little. Went- little bit of darkness, not blinding darkness. So this is where we're at. Let us know if you enjoyed the adaptations of Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web that have hit our screens. Um, but also let us know if you liked the books, if if they were important books to you growing up. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my.